This month, December 2021, IVF turns 40, or more specifically, my guest today, Elizabeth Carr, the first U.S. IVF baby, turns 40. Today's episode is brought to you by First Response, America's most trusted pregnancy test brand, voted by American shoppers based on the 2020 BrandSpark American Trust Study. We know how vulnerable and exciting these testing moments can be, and First Response honors all pregnancy test moments. Making headline news in 1981, Elizabeth was known as a, quote, test tube baby. The Washington Post's coverage at the time said, America's first test tube baby was born yesterday, three and a half years after two British scientists showed the world how to start the miracle of human conception in a laboratory dish. Five pound, 12 ounce Elizabeth Jordan Carr was delivered at Norfolk General Hospital at 7.46 a.m. by cesarean section. She is the first successful product of a 21-month-old in vitro fertilization program that literally fertilizes human eggs in plastic dishes at the Eastern Virginia Medical School. Both the baby and her mother, Judith Carr, a 28-year-old Westminster Mass school teacher, later were pronounced perfectly healthy. The baby had her first feeding and doctors said she took an ounce of formula very well. The baby cried right away and that was very reassuring, said Dr. Mason Andrews, who performed the C-section. It was a relief to know that this was a normal baby. Elizabeth was, in fact, healthy and normal, but nothing about the attention she received as a science baby was normal. I mean, Pope John Paul basically called me a child of the devil. <laughs> like the, the hate and fear mongering has not entirely left, right? So my, when my parents had me, obviously at that point they had decided to go public. They did have the option, right, of staying private. But my parents felt very strongly that like this lack of privacy was worth it because they wanted people to know that this option was available to them and that it worked and that it was successful. But my mother literally had Pinkerton guards outside of her hospital room and they had security badges and secret code names and things so that, you know, only certain people could be in the wing of the hospital. And when I got home to Massachusetts with my parents, we lived on a cul-de-sac and the entire cul-de-sac was filled with satellite trucks and media trucks. And luckily it was the 80s. And so my parents had like an unlisted phone number. Today, I'm sitting down with Elizabeth to talk about what it was like to grow up knowing she was created in a lab, what she has seen change in the world of reproduction during her lifetime, and what she hopes the future holds not only for her, but for the future of fertility. Elizabeth, thanks so much for being on the Pregnish Podcast. I'm a December baby too. I'm also the mother of an IVF December baby, and you really kick that off. Thanks so much for having me and my condolences. I, I'm, I'm hoping that you have an abundance of birthday wrapping paper in your house instead of Christmas wrapping paper, because that was always my rule as a kid. I needed to have the birthday paper. 100%. That's the thing about us December babies. We all understand that. Um, you know, you've made headline news from the minute, literally the minute you were born. So before we go into your incredible story, because some some people listening know at least the broad strokes of it. Tell us about who you are now, what your life is like now. Sure. So I am a runner. I'm a mom. I'm a wife. Uh, I'm a dog mom. <laughs> so I have an 11-year-old 11, 11 son. 
And I'm also a patient advocate at a company called Genomic Prediction, which does pre-implantation genetic testing. Um, and so it's not a far cry, right, that I am in this advocacy role, one that I've basically held since I was a little kid. Yeah. And, and what's so fascinating is that you really had no choice but to be asked about this and to talk about this. So going back to this headline about the first U.S. test tube baby, when did you know you were a headline and special this way? Yeah. I mean, this is always such a hard question for me because everybody asks this and I always say, I feel like I've always known. And so I really have to kind of rack my brain and think about when I was told. But basically, you know, my parents told me how I was born when I was little enough to start asking the questions of where do babies come from? And they basically just said, we needed the help of some very special doctors to get you here. And, you know, until you turn a certain age, that sounds like a logical answer and you don't ask any more questions. But then when I was about six or seven, my family and I went down to Virginia for a Mother's Day reunion with my doctors, Howard and Georgiana, who brought me into the world and all the other IVF babies at the time. So there were probably, I don't know, maybe 10 of us at that point. And um, they screened a documentary of my birth called A Daughter for Judy. And so I had one doctor on my right-hand side and one on my left-hand side explaining to me the process by which I got here in great scientific detail, which for a six or seven-year-old is kind of like, oh my goodness. But actually it was really helpful because I learned at that age the elevator speech from Dr. Georgiana of how to explain to people how I got here. You know, it's a sperm and an egg fertilized in a Petri dish. And once it's fertilized, it's put back in the mother. And nine months later, I was born just like anybody else. And that's honestly the same sentence I've been saying since I was six or seven years old, thanks to them sitting with me. Well, it's amazing because most people don't even know how babies are made, let alone babies born in a lab. So I think it's helpful. That story doesn't go out of style. People still don't quite understand it. So explaining it. But test tube is a bit of a misnomer, isn't it? Yeah, there's actually not any test tubes used in IVF. In vitro actually means under glass. And that's really where the the term came from. But it was actually a reporter, ironically, who kind of coined the phrase and it stuck. And so by the time, you know, it was used when the first in the world, Louise Brown was born, the term test tube baby had come about. And so by the time I was here, like, the media had already adopted it. There was like no turning back. Luckily, though, over the years, they've gotten away from it because they realized like, oh, that's actually a terrible term. It has nothing to do at all with the procedure. So Absolutely. And even with IUI insemination, I remember when we were undergoing IUIs and friends who hadn't gone, you know, done any fertility treatments would say, oh, is that the turkey baster method? (laughs) So we have a long way to go in terms of education, but I guess it's good when people ask questions. It's better than making assumptions. So as a little kid, were people always asking you questions? I mean, was it just a constant source of conversation or in other ways, did you have a very normal childhood? So it's funny. I basically had this dual life, right? So when you look at me, 
I look like everybody else. You can't pick out of a crowd. This is the funniest thing to me is, right? You can't ever pick out of a crowd like, oh, that's an IVF baby when they walk down the street, right? You don't know. And so I had a pretty normal childhood, except for (laughs) when there were milestones or things and the press would kind of come knocking and haul my family out and ask a bunch of questions. And then it became like, you know, my friends or people in school would be like, oh my God, why didn't you tell me? And it's like, well, when was the last time you explained to somebody like, oh, I'm a natural birth. You do not have those conversations in normal everyday life of like, well, you know, and you don't even explain really like my mom had an epidural or not. Like, you know, all the, all the things, you know, you don't discuss those things. So in many ways, I had a very normal childhood. And in many other ways, like, I got to travel the world and attend fertility conferences. Like it's a running joke. I had doctors telling me at age like 16, now don't wait too long to get pregnant because your fertility will decline. And my mother's standing next to me going, can we please, you know, not rush those conversations. It's been, I I guess it's, it's my life, but it's, it's been uh, bizarre, I guess is the best. (laughs) And, and what was your parents' situation when they, you know, they, they made the headline news too, of course, because they took the risk to try this innovative treatment. So what was their story? How did they, how did they end up undergoing the first IVF treatment? Yeah, well, so my mom always jokes, you know, they didn't know they were going to be the first. There were other people in the program and it was basically a crapshoot because everybody in the program was on a different protocol because they still didn't know what was going to work and what wasn't. But basically, when my mother was young, she had her appendix rupture. So she had a surgery to have her appendix out. And scar tissue from that surgery actually complicated her fertility later in life. And she actually had three eptopic pregnancies, which basically is, you know, very life-threatening. My mom basically almost bled to death three three times internally. On the third try, or on the third eptopic pregnancy, she had her fallopian tubes removed, which, you know, if you're trying to have a baby, fallopian tubes are kind of an essential thing, right? So the doctor, her OBGYN said, you're not going to probably ever have a biological child of your own. And you should, you know, look into other options. And so they were looking into adoption and at a checkup, you know, just a regular checkup that she had, her doctor basically threw this brochure across the table to her and said, I came back from a conference and I learned about this thing called in vitro and you sound like a good candidate. Maybe it's something you should check out. And he wrote her a letter of recommendation. They applied to the program And about three days later, Dr. Jones, Dr. Howard Jones called and said, when can you get here? Now, meanwhile, the situation is my parents live in Massachusetts. She's a school teacher. My dad worked at GE, General Electric, and IVF was actually illegal in Massachusetts. And so they had to go to Virginia every month um, by plane and whatever and have hormones and, you know, checkups and things like that. And then the last month, right before I was born, they rented a little condo and I was born in Virginia. Yeah. And you know, what's so interesting about that, Elizabeth, so many of us who had science babies traveled the world into great lengths, both literally and figuratively to have our babies. I know I had a baby via uh, gestational surrogacy and so many times it was not easy. And we traveled this great distance that I don't know that my daughter, well, I know for sure she doesn't understand it now. She's not even three, but (laughs) 
at what point did you realize the great lengths your family went to to create you? And what did you think about that? Well, so I think, you know, I learned very young that I wasn't born like everybody else, obviously. And there's a story that I actually tell in my upcoming book that's coming out in January about a doctor, my neonatologist actually, who wrote me a letter basically a few hours after I was born. And it's like a 12 page letter. And in it, he explains like just how much my parents wanted me. And, you know, basically like I'm not special because of the way I was born. I'm special because my parents fought so hard to, to have me and to get me here. And, you know, he told my parents, well, give her this letter when she's old enough to read it. It's so true that we fight to have our science babies, even today. And that's what makes our children's conception stories so extraordinary. I can't even imagine the feeling Elizabeth's parents had when they took a pregnancy test and learned they were finally pregnant, thanks to this new innovative treatment called IVF. And speaking of taking a pregnancy test, I wanted to take a brief opportunity to thank today's episode sponsor, First Response. First Response honors all testing moments. Whether you're asking yourself, am I pregnant? With complete anxiety because you so badly want the positive result, as Elizabeth's parents clearly wanted. Or asking, am I? Because you don't want the positive pregnancy result, which is so hard for any of us who have struggled to conceive to even consider. First Response is there for both realities. And now back to Elizabeth's amazing story of finding a letter from her parents' doctor about the way she was conceived. Of course, the irony is I think they forgot. (laughs) And I just kind of (laughs) discovered it in an album, in a photo album one day when I was about 10 or 11. And, you know, I've always known. And ironically, you know, there was an incredible pressure I put on myself because you realize very quickly that like, if I hadn't come out normal, quote unquote, I'm not sure where we would be. I'm not sure IVF would be legal in the US and other places. And I knew that as a young child, I knew very clearly, make sure when you're on television, Elizabeth, you are articulate, you behave yourself, you say, please and thank you. And you are polite and you behave appropriately. And, you know, all these things, I always wanted to be the best at everything. And I've, I've always been a perfectionist. It was very hard for me to be terrible at anything, which ironically now I'm a runner. And like the best thing about running is that you're never actually, you know, amazing at it. It's always hard. So, but I, I knew that from a very young age and it was, it was something I always had in the back of my head. That's so interesting. I I don't think I would have thought about that, but that totally makes sense because you were representing this unknown thing that could have easily not, like you said, been legal. And I think even today we're we're in an era now where reproductive rights are challenged constantly. And we we have to, you know, I lobby on Capitol Hill every year with Resolve to show lawmakers that some of us need science to create families. And those who fight so hard to become parents probably should become parents. That is, that is, you know, the the kind of parent you want in this country. But were you challenged politically through your life? Like, were you, did people spread any hateful or negative messages about the way you were conceived? Oh, sure. I mean, Pope John Paul basically called me a child of the devil. (laughs) Like the the hate and fear mongering has not entirely left, right? So when my parents had me, obviously at that point they had decided to go public. They did have the option 
right, of staying private. But my parents felt very strongly that like this lack of privacy was worth it because they wanted people to know that this option was available to them and that it worked and that it was successful. But my mother literally had Pinkerton guards outside of her hospital room and they had security badges and secret code names and things so that, you know, only certain people could be in the wing of the hospital. And when I got home to Massachusetts with my parents, we lived on a cul-de-sac and the entire cul-de-sac was filled with satellite trucks and media trucks. And luckily it was the eighties. And so my parents had like an unlisted phone number. So it was a little hard to kind of track down where we were, but yeah, of course people have always had still to this day said like, Oh, that's playing God. And you know, people are arguing about issues now where they're like, Oh, you know, we shouldn't be doing that. And I'm like, look, you know, (laughs) I'm the wrong person to talk to about this because that makes me feel like you're saying that I shouldn't be here. And that's, you know, just a Pandora's box that we, you know, we opened it. We can't close it now. This is where we are. That's amazing. How did your parents respond to that? I mean, they basically didn't, right? I mean, they basically were like, we're going to just do everything in our power to enjoy our family and, you know, let our daughter know that we care very deeply about her and want her to grow up and live the best life that she can. We did have something that I call now being a media professional, I call them an agent in reverse, which was basically like we had somebody who worked with the hospital where I was born and passed media inquiries along to my parents, but they would kind of pre-screen for us, right? So we didn't do the things like Oprah or Donahue or Maury Povich, you know, in front of a live audience, which would open us up, like open me, especially as a little kid up to open questions and criticism. But we did do the things like PBS and Nova and things like that. Anything that we thought was truly going to be educational, we did participate in. Wow, that's amazing. What what advice would you have for other science babies? We've actually published at Pregnanish an essay called Science Baby All Grown Up. She was also an early science baby feeling the pressure, like you said, uh, which I, I find so fascinating. But even today, with over 8 million IVF babies born in the world, and you were the first American, and I've spoken with Louise in the UK, who was the first in the world, Yet still, there's so many misconceptions. What would you tell other science babies about their origin story? Do you have advice for them if they're challenged or, you know, any anything you want to share with them being being an early uh, one in this role? Yeah, I mean, it's never easy to be a first of something. Right. And I think that it puts us in this unique position where you know, I've kind of gone the other way and I've embraced it and I've learned to use my voice to do things like advocate for insurance coverage in this, in this country, you know, things like that. And I think the more we talk about these things, the less the stigma will exist because it still exists. It's still there. I still get people coming up to me and saying in a hushed tone, oh, you know, so-and-so of my family had an IVF baby. And of course I'm like, that's that's great. You know, I'm loud and boisterous about it. And, but there are still people who, who very much don't want to discuss it. And I think the biggest irony of somebody dealing with infertility or reproductive issues is that they don't really know about their options until they're in crisis. Until they are faced with having to make a decision about what to do next is when you learn about your options. And I operate from a place of, I hope that we all can get to a point where we know 
about all sorts of reproductive options far before we even think about needing them. And that they're just in our everyday conversation in a way that is not stigmatized and where people know about these things because people, you know, to this day don't still don't understand what IVF is if you're not going through it. That's a really good point. I, I cr- created Pregnish five years ago with that same hope that it to be de- destigmatized and to show the world that families are created in so many beautiful ways. And there are options. Actually, we did a, an 1,100-person patient survey about two years ago and learned that one of the pain points of patients today, and Elizabeth, I'm sure you know this, is feeling like there's a lack of options when they're cycling through treatment. They want to try the latest, most innovative things because they don't want to be told it's too late or this won't work. And of course, that's the reality for some people. Some people... IVF doesn't work for traditionally, and they have to do extra steps. I was one of those people. But knowing there are options is very empowering. That's what made you a patient advocate, I assume? Well, that and just, you know, I've been asked questions my entire life. And it's actually part of why I became a journalist was because I felt like it was part of my job almost to explain this stuff to people in a way that they could understand and it became less intimidating. And so for me, that that's really why I was like, okay, I just want to do anything in my power to make, make it so that people know what's out there. And I've heard so many stories from people just over the years coming up and asking me questions. And I was like, there's got to be a better, there's got to be a better way to do this, right? There's got to be a way that we can talk about things on a on a wider scale. And, you know, if I can use my voice to do that, then that's what I'm going to do. I love that. Over the years, what are some of the stories you've heard? Do any stick out? Oh, man. I think the stories right now that stick with me the most are the ones about people are still surprised that, you know, IVF doesn't work on the first try most of the time. Like, you know, the success that you see in the media of like first IVF baby and, you know, all these things. But the reality of the situation is like, you know, the success rate is not 100%. You know, you don't get pregnant necessarily on the first shot. My parents, my parents' story is like one of the outliers and is so rare. I mean, the fact that they there was one egg and you're looking at her like that's that never happens or almost never happens. Right. So, you know, I think those are the stories right now that stick with me of like, wow, in 40 years, we still have so much more educating to do. And then just, you know, the same battle we've been fighting since I was a little kid for access to, to treatment. You know, I was just on a webinar two days ago with a couple from Sweden who had an IVF baby. And in Sweden, the government will actually pay for three full cycles of IVF. Same with Canada if you're under 45. Yeah, exactly. And I'm sitting here going, wow. I mean, and, you know, and they're they're discussing the pain points of of healthcare in, in Sweden. And I'm like, well, heck, you guys are light years ahead of where we are, right? Because a lot of times it's still out of pocket here. You know, there's only 19 states that have an insurance mandate to cover IVF and other reproductive technologies. And so, you know, that's still like, I won't rest until we've got them all. You know, I mean, that's just like a battle I'm never going to stop fighting. Me as well. I It's just not right. It's not right that people need to 
put their life savings on the line, take out so many loans, be in great debt to have a baby. It's not, you know, I, I remember speaking with a lawmaker who kind of framed it as a want, but not a need. And I would disagree with that because having a baby for so many of us is literally one of our highest values. You, you could not find higher stakes than that. So it is a need for people who want it desperately. And we, we absolutely need more coverage and support. What, what has changed in your lifetime for the better and not for the better in this category that you've seen? So, I mean, technology itself has come so far, right? Like I remember touring a facility where they were just starting to cryopreserve eggs for people going through cancer treatments. And now you can, of course, freeze your eggs and keep them there for however long for future cycles for to donate to, you know, all these other options. I remember when ICSI came onto the scene to deal with male factor infertility. And before that, you know, people were like, well, if you have male factor infertility, there's really not much we can do for you. You know, I remember the first time a uterus transplant was done and just what that opened up. I mean, it's really kind of, in one way, it's gone very fast. And in other ways, the protocol is really not that different from when I was born, which is kind of funny to me. Just now there are companies coming onto the scene where they're really going to try and, you know, shake up the industry. But, you know, by and large, it's it's kind of the same run of the mill stuff that my mom went through. Yeah. It used to be that you could, that's, that's so interesting because you're right. And you used to cryopreserve, I think for up to 10 years, something like that, your eggs or embryos. And now 50 years, 60 years, this is going to change what, not just what fertility looks like, what family building looks like. Because if you freeze your eggs now at 28 years old and then decide to transfer, make embryos at 45 or 50, you, you can. And that, that is a game changer. And, you know, for my career, I've tracked uh, dating trends, relationship trends. I see that as one of the biggest disruptors of relationships in our lifetime, because this just will look so different when we have that choice. So what on the, on the side of misconceptions, what do you think has stayed the same or changed? I think stayed the same, you know, people still expect me to be different in some way. The running joke when I was a little kid was like, I always wanted to answer that question with like, yeah, I have x-ray vision or something, you know, like be, be like, you know, a self-fulfilling prophecy of like, oh yeah, no, I can, I have special superpowers or whatever. And the spoiler, I don't, right? There are still people who expect me to be different. But on the other side, now it's so commonplace that you basically can't go 10, 12 feet without bumping into somebody who's used some kind of reproductive reproductive technology. And I think that's, you know, a real testament to just how far and how hard, you know, we've all worked in this field to come that far. It's pretty incredible. It really is incredible. I remember speaking with someone at one of the advocacy events who told me that just even 20, 25 years ago, so you were you were a teenager at that time, Resolve would have to send their communications, their letters to patients with a fake label a fake address because it was so stigmatized to have infertility. We know it's biblical, of course, (laughs) like the, the, the barren woman has never been 
and it's not just a woman issue, but the barren women have, have always been part of our uh, literature and it's, it's just wildly misunderstood. And we're, we're trying constantly to change what infertility looks like. So what's so interesting to me, Elizabeth, is you're showing what IVF and science babies look like, normal, productive members of society who are grateful for their origin stories. And I'm trying to show what the infertile people look like. Also, sporty, athletic, strong, healthy. <laughs> like We don't look sick. We don't look barren. And, you know, part of what we did, there was a joke last year at Pregnantish that we could have had a calendar with all these beauty queens I was interviewing on the podcast who had infertility. <laughs> like, this is what it looks like. It looks like you and me. It looks like millions of people. We need to get with the times. It's affecting a lot of people. And a lot of people are not served because they either are ashamed, they can't access it, or they don't know they have it. So what, your your family, have they used their voices to advocate this way? I know they stayed quiet when there was the controversy. And what do they talk about when it comes to this topic? Yeah, I mean, obviously, we've always, you know, traveled all around kind of speaking to anyone who really listen, to be honest with you, about, you know, what options are out there and let them know how to access these resources. But also, you know, we've always kind of worked quietly behind the scenes in ways that people don't see, you know, that the press doesn't cover. Like I too am an advocate for Resolve and currently working very hard to try and get healthcare passed in insurance mandate in one particular state right now. And that's weekly meetings that nobody sees, right? That we are working really hard to figure out how to push this forward and, you know, help host support groups. And I'm on a board that gives out family building scholarships and, you know, all these other kind of ways that my family and I have always been involved that are equally as important, even if you don't hear or see them, because that's really the work that is just so critical. You know, until we have access for all, we need to make sure that these resources get the support and help that they need, you know, to keep, to keep doing the work, to keep doing the really hard work. I love that you shared that because I think it's very true that so much work is happening behind the scenes in terms of patient advocacy and even defending still the the right that we have to have IVF or fertility treatment, any fertility treatment or coverage is a battle constantly that the audience may not be aware of. And we have a long way to go, baby. We, we all know that. But what do you hope the future looks like? I mean, now you're turning 40, which is incredible. What do you hope the next 40 years looks like with fertility and family building? I mean, my hope is that it becomes even more mainstream and that it becomes something that, you know, doesn't get the media attention because it is so commonplace and run of the mill and that it does get the care and access that it deserves. You know, I would love to get to a point where the cost is reasonable and low and covered. And, but also, like, I would love to have it taught in school curriculums, you know, in healthcare classes. And I know, I know fully well that my 11 year old son probably has more sex education under his belt from talking with his dear old mom here than he's going to get at his school. And, you know, I always 
harken back to the fact that I vividly, I tell this story in the book too, I vividly remember the discussion where the boys and the girls when I was in fifth grade were separated and I kind of nudged my friend and I was like, we're going to have the talk. I can tell. And she was like, what talk? What are you talking about? What talk are we going to have? And lo and behold, like, you know, cue up a video of our changing bodies and whatever. And the school nurse explained, you know, this is how babies were made. And at the end, she looked around the room and said, are there any questions? And I raised my hand and I was like, um, yeah, that's not at all how I got here. And then I explained how I was born because I felt very strongly that like, this was inaccurate and this was not how I got here. And, you know, I'm hoping that we can get to a point where, you know, kids that are egg donor babies or are, you know, brought through gestational surrogacy or through adoption or whatever the case may be, will feel comfortable enough to raise their own hands and say, okay, let's talk about all the other ways now. Let's not just talk about the one way. Yes, yes, yes. I still edit in real time when I read Ariel, my daughter, a book. You came from mommy's belly. No, you did not come from mommy's belly. You came from cousin Alana's belly. And she repeats that. She doesn't understand that. But we we have to edit these books. And these aren't books that came out 30 years ago. These are contemporary books about how babies are made. Today, you you when we say this constantly at Pregnish, first comes love, then marriage, then baby carriage is an outdated narrative. Modern families look very different and we need literature, <laughs> even for children, to support that. But I love what you said about the classroom because so often in class we're told how not also to get pregnant. Yeah. <laughs> we're in this country, there's a lot of emphasis on how not to get pregnant. And we're, we're not given the basic facts about not only fertility, but when there are challenges with fertility and what, how to just, understand our reproductive bodies in a way that's empowering, not scary, but empowering. Yeah. I mean, it's so true because I, you know, I joke, I, I learned all of the anatomy super young because I, I had to, you know, it was splashed everywhere in my, in my life, but I didn't learn it in school. I didn't learn it from any textbooks, you know, or anything like that. And you spend so much time as a young adult trying not to get pregnant that you don't ever think like what happens when I do want to get pregnant and it doesn't happen. Right. And that's where like back to my further point of like, I, I want to get to a point where people aren't making this decision in crisis of like what they're going to do next, because IVF may not be, you know, like you said, it may not be the solution for them. It might be something else and that's fine. But you know, you have to have the tools and the knowledge and the baseline understanding of your own body and how reproduction works in order to make that decision. Yes. Amen. And not to tell our kids, you have a wee wee and a pee pee. Like I tell my daughter, you have a vagina. <laughs> like these are reproduct. We, why are we giving cutesy names that make it seem that there's anything remotely wrong or strange with your body part that has to change too from a young age is there anything else you want to add elizabeth i mean i'm so fascinated by your perspective and this discussion but anything else we haven't covered that you want to share 
Yeah. I mean, I just always want to stress to people that no question is stupid. That's why I became a journalist. You're allowed to ask questions that even you think are stupid because the truth is if you wonder them, somebody else is wondering it as well. So I always want to encourage people to contact me, reach out. There's nothing off limits. You can ask me anything. Um, You can go to my website, which is ejordancarr.com, C-A-R-R.com. And leave me a note. You know, I have a podcast, I have an upcoming book, I have, you know, write frequently on my blog about this with like lists of resources and all the other kinds of things that we were talking about today. So, you know, please, nothing is off limits. That is so great. I, so thank you so much. I, I know December is going to be a very busy month for you. Happy, happy birthday. Thank you for using your voice in this powerful way to help really the future generations who need access to treatment to create their families. Thank you for everything. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Pregnant Podcast, where we cover the trend of modern family building and show the incredible innovation and what's really possible when families are built through science and technology. Please subscribe and continue to follow us at Pregnantish. Until next time.